As you flip your bulletin, you notice that we are in for a big one here. Genesis 24, the whole chapter. Okay, Andrew. <laughs> no, we are picking up in our summer series, coming back to Genesis. If you re remember last summer, we ended in Genesis with Abraham burying Sarah. And now we pick up as the family, as the line continues with the, make sure you get this right, longest single narrative in Genesis, or Isaac and Rebecca, and they marry, and they continue the family, they continue the line. So this summer, we'll continue to be in Genesis, looking at how God is working early in his people. So I'm only going to read verses 1 through 9. Um, you may thank me later. In Genesis 24, verses 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. May I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will, be, you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The word of the Lord. Father, we come before you as we hear your word spoken. We ask that you would speak through Andrew, that you would make your word clear for us, that it would be exhorted so we may know what it says and what it means for our lives today, that we know how to be obedient to you unto this word. Lord, so I ask again, you would be in our hearts and our minds, strengthening us, clarifying your word for us, that we may go forward and be your people, as this text alludes to the beginning of that. So Father, we ask a grace and a blessing this morning on this message and a grace and a blessing on Andrew. I pray all of these things in the Lord's beautiful name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be together and open God's word. I am really excited to be back in, in Genesis uh, for the summer we've been it's our third summer actually doing this, and we are going to make our way to the end of Genesis. It's going to be a little bit of a rush, and we're going to, um, we're going to take some big chunks. Uh, this is a big chunk here. Like Addison said, it's the longest single narrative uh, in Genesis, 67 verses um, about the, the getting of a wife for Isaac, who through whom the, the seed would continue. The, the stories in Genesis, one of the reasons why I really love them is because 
They're, they're so full of, also as Addison said earlier, the stuff of life. They're, you know, husbands and wives and fathers and sons, mothers and sons, sibling rivalry, uh, making decisions in the face of not having a lot of information, uh, taking a risk, stepping out. Uh, they're about enemies in the land and threats to the faith. They're, all of those things are, are things that we face daily. We, we, we face the, the stuff that God uh, leads us through. And what's so important that we see in Genesis, and indeed, I mean, hermeneutical key to reading all of the, the scriptures, is that they're not just simply moral lessons. They're not just simply be like Isaac or be like Rebecca or be like Abraham's servant who we think is named Eliezer. I mean, these are stories about how God is working in his world. And, and when we see that, we, we gain a confidence because we know that it's God's world and he works in it. And, and in our lives as well, as we face some of these same challenges that these uh, these folks face, we can have confidence that God works in our lives. This last week, the National Center for Health Statistics reported that America's general fertility rate hit a record low in 2017. The record, which is bad enough on its own, raised eyebrows because it came during a time of economic prosperity. Uh, usually when the economy is down, the birth rate goes down as well. But this time, economy up, birth rate down. Why is it? Well, usually they associate it with a sense of a loss of hope. You know, there, there are so many threats in the land. Can we really bring children into this world? Can we really... You know, what I'm so worried about all of these other things, can I focus on raising a child at this time? And there may be a sense of that loss of hope as well. Reaching back to 2015, uh, it's been reported that millennials are experiencing an unprecedented levels uh, of anxiety and depression. So millennials are the ones who would be having babies, right, uh, in their 20s. Uh, more than 25% of current college students have a diagnosable mental illness. 61% of over 1,000 college students who responded to the American College Health Association assessment uh, reported feeling overwhelming anxiety within the last year. And it just goes right on down into our young people. Uh, they don't just start in college, according to Psychology Today. The average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety uh, as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Now, there's lots of things that we could say about that, and there's always interpretation uh, that is needed uh, to, to, you know, when we hear statistics and that type of thing. But I think you can see that there is there is a, a level of anxiety that maybe has always existed, but certainly is existing now. There are, there are more people killed uh, through drug overdose uh, than were killed through the entire Vietnam War. 
so the, the statistics point to it and, and then bear it out. Like there is high levels of anxiety and threat that go on in our world. And it affects how we think about going forward with our lives, whether we get married, whether we are even interested, this article suggested, that the interest in sex alone is going down among young people. Uh, what is causing these things? Why do we think about it? The reason why I bring it up, of course, is just that there are always threats. A and part of what we need to think about today is how do we go forward in hope when there may seem to be no hope? How, how do we remain faithful uh, to our, our God and, and following him in faith when the deck seems to be stacked against us. And I, I want to suggest to you four things. In some ways, we can look at four different characters. We can look at Abraham. We can look at Eliezer, the servant. We can look at Rebecca, and we can look at Isaac. Uh, and, and we can uh, know four things about how to respond to a God who is faithful uh, in the midst of threatening situations. The first thing is this. Like Abraham, in these verses that we just read, 1 to 9, we have to be clear about what is important. Isaac uh, was set to be sacrificed in Genesis chapter 22. God stayed his hand. Uh, Genesis chapter 23, Sarah dies. Uh, Genesis chapter 24, Abraham recognizes the mortality uh, of him, his wife, and he says, it's time for Isaac to get married. Isaac is about 40 years old at this time. Uh, so he's <coughs> old, you know, in terms of, of getting married. Uh, and, and, I, and Abraham is just very clear that God's promises involved a seed. God made three promises to him. He said, you're going to have a great, you're going to be a great people. You're, you're going to have a, a land that I will show you. And your name is going to be great. Uh, those are the things that I am going to give you in order that you might be a blessing to the nations. But all he has is Isaac right now. Isaac is ch clearly the child of the promise, and there's no seed. And so Abraham says a seed has to be uh, preserved. A and so recognizing what was of first importance, he sends his servant to, to go do this. He sends a servant to procure the, the, the seed maker, the, the means by which the seed will come into the land, and he, he goes after this. And he says, it can't be from the Canaanites. There's a couple of things that are interesting here for Abraham. Uh, you know, both his determination not to leave the land, which I'll talk about in just a minute, as well as the, um, the determination to gain a seed from his people and not from the Canaanites, neither one of those were ever express commands from God at this point. You know, later on there'll be commands not to marry the Canaanites and so on and so forth. But, but Abraham sees what God is doing and he has heard in Genesis 15, for instance, that the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure and he recognizes that there is a difference between who God has called him to be and who the Canaanites are, who are worshiping other gods other than Yahweh. They're involved in fertility religions and all of these other things. He recognizes a difference, and so he sends them back to his, uh, his kinsmen, feeling that there was, uh, 
that was more to be desired, even though his kinsmen were not necessarily worshipers of Yahweh. Uh, they were moon worshipers. They were doing uh, different things. We'll see later on in the story of, of Rachel coming out of Laban's household that she has these household gods that she won't give up. And uh, so his kinsmen weren't perfect, but they weren't the Canaanites. And Abraham you know, was able to see from the way that God was leading him that he was to remain separate. And he was also to remain in the land. This was very important. One of the things that's so interesting about those first nine verses is that when the, the servant, again, who we think is Eleazar, his servant mentioned earlier in the Genesis narratives, when the servant says, well, what if she won't come back? Should I bring Isaac to the land of Haran, outside of the promised land. Verse 5, he says that. Verse 6, Abraham is vehement. He says, absolutely not. Do not do this thing. And if she won't come back, then you are released from your vow. But do not bring Isaac out of the land. Again, uh, there's been no express command given for this. But I think a couple of things. One... Abraham is seeing the trajectory of where God is leading him. And everything has been away from your people to the land which I will show you. And Abraham wants to stay in that trajectory. But also remember this. That leaving his land and his own people was not an easy thing for Abraham. Do you remember how we noted that it, it took him a number of years from the call for him to leave. And in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen recounts this history, uh, he, he says that God had to basically arrest Abraham in order to bring him to the land. That Abraham was recalcitrant in terms of leaving his father's household and going to the land. And I think what we see here is an old man who says, look at I know how hard this is. And if Isaac goes back, it may be very difficult for him to come back and for him to sojourn in the desert areas and to be in that place. And so wisely, Abraham says, don't bring him back. Incidentally, when Jacob does go back, Isaac's son Jacob does go back, it takes him over 20 years to get back to the promised land. Uh, he sojourns with, uh, with Laban, and God had to like push him out too. So, so going back is not a good thing. Now there's a, a lesson for us there, right? You know, once you've been, once you've seen the promised land, once you've you know, uh, felt the, the provision and the promises of God, don't go back. Burn the ships. You know, when, when Cortez and his sailors got to America, they got to the New World, you know, he, he knew that it was going to be hard, and so he ordered his sailors to burn the ships. We are going to make a life here. You can't go back. And, and part of what Abraham wants to communicate is this is our life. This is what God has called us to. Don't set your affections on things that may have been. The other thing, I think, just to learn through this is the importance, now listen to me, the importance, younger generation, of listening to older generations because they know. They've been there. You know, we, we struggle. We mess up. Uh, I'm, I'm putting myself with the younger generation. Note that. Uh, we struggle. We mess up all along. Uh, and, and sometimes we look at our parents or we look at the older generations and think, they, they just live these, you know, ceremoniously clean lives all the way through. 
Is that true, older generation? <laughs> no, absolutely not. You know, you've made your share of mistakes, and, and you have the wisdom to say, don't go back. You don't want to be there. You, you, you don't, you, you, it's so hard to leave. You know, I struggled with that so much. Don't go in that generation. Abraham says, no, don't let him go back. So Eliezer leaves, and many of you know the story. I'm going to give it to you very short. Again, very long narrative. It actually, it basically repeats twice because the first, you know, verses 10 to 24 or so, Eliezer gets there. Uh, he prays. Uh, he, you know, he takes a long journey. He's got all kinds of stuff with him, camels and other gifts in order to, uh, to woo this person that he might meet uh, on behalf of Isaac. Uh, he gets to the land and he goes to the well, which is a very smart place to go uh, because that's where the young women come, right? Their, their job is to draw water and uh, to be involved in things that involve them going to the well. So he goes to the well and, and he prays. He says, you know, Lord. And I love his prayer, incidentally. Uh, his prayer is very personal. Sort of different than a lot of the communication that we get in the Old Testament. You know, the Lord speaks, the Lord does these things. Sometimes it's visions and it's kind of weird. But Eliezer here in this passage, and I encourage you to go back and read it, he prays very much like we pray. And that's so encouraging because we recognize that God has always been intimate with his people. And that we have that kind of access where we can have this conversation with God. And Eliezer prays, like, help me to discern this. So we see this real mixture in Eliezer uh, of action. He's going, he's doing, he's, he's putting himself in places to succeed. And prayer, he's waiting on God. He's, uh, he's putting himself at God's disposal he is asking God to show him and to lead him. And, and again, you know, principally, you know, how do we discern God at work in our lives? Isn't it a combination of action, you know, doing the things that uh, God has shown us in his word to do, that God has in front of us, doing them as faithfully as we can, and prayer, seeking his will, listening to his voice, Asking him, will you guide me? Will you show me? All of these things. It is this combination of faith and action. It's not right just to go off into your room and only pray and not be out in the world acting, not following the places of God. Now, there may be a season for that, you know, where we really are intently seeking the Lord. But if that's all you're doing... That's not the, the picture of faithfulness that we see in the Bible. Abraham didn't just uh, think about following the Lord, right? He followed the Lord. He got up. He left his father's house, went to the land that God would show him. Here, Eliezer goes, puts himself in places of success, follows the Lord. But it's also not right to just do. And, and sometimes I think, you know, we... You've heard this, I'm sure, a million times. You know, we tend to be more human doings uh, than human beings. We, we tend to focus on our action and activity rather than listening to the voice of God. 
And we all come to these very significant points in our lives. Like Eliezer, where he has been given a task, and he's seeking the Lord's will. And he has this combination of faith and activity. I think about it with young people. You know, here we are, you know, sort of graduation Sunday here at Christ Church. And, and we think about, you know, what is laid out, whether you're graduating from college or whether you're graduating uh, from high school or fifth uh, f uh, kindergarten, fifth grade. How old are you? Five. It must mean you're in fifth grade. Um, yeah, you're graduating. You know, we have life choices. How do we discern? That's only for homeschools, incidentally. Uh, how do we discern uh, what our direction is? You know, well, we have to do things. You have to apply for college. You, you have to, you know, find out about a trade, or you have to do an internship or an apprenticeship. We, we have to go, you know, and do things, but we also need to be seeking the Lord. Is this something, you know, is making the most money, is that simply what God is calling you to? Or does God call you to pursue justice and to walk humbly with our God? You know, so how do we begin? We, we do that. But it's not only young people. You know, it, it, every step along the way, you know, sort of those of us who are in the middle, middle-aged, is that, I don't know. You know, and you're in the middle, uh, you know, everywhere from 70 down to, you can thank me later on that, you know, when you're in the middle of life. Um, and there's lots of decisions, you know, career, job, uh, you know, how, what do we do with these kids that are now getting older and have a mind of their own? You know, how do we get, we, we're faced with these things all the time. And, and so there's a combination of activity, faithful to the Lord but also prayer, waiting on the Lord. Show me, help me to discern. You get older. It doesn't get any easier. You know, what, my body is failing. Where am I going to live? You know, I can't walk up steps like I used to be able to walk up steps. You know, I, I may even be at the point where I need some outside help to take care of my physical needs. And, and this is something that is really pressing on my dignity. It's really pressing on... Uh, my pride, how, how am I going to, how am I going to face these kind of decisions? Well, you know, you got to look, right? You've got to find out what's out there, but then you wait on the Lord and we seek his guidance every step along the way. And, and what's so interesting as we continue on the story is just how decisively Rebecca acts. So, you know, if we first looked at Abraham and his, uh, you know, in the just absolute focus on knowing what was important and, and, and following the will of God, particularly with regards to the seed and land, we look at Eliezer, uh, who then makes the journey and, and, and seeks the guidance of the Lord between this, this combination of, of action and then faith, looking to God and his promises. There does come a time when decisive action is needed. And we really see that in the person of Rebecca, verses 51 or 54 to, to 61. There's so many interesting things in this story. You know, you get a hint of Laban's character uh, when Laban sees 
Rebecca coming back from the well, and she's been given this costly nose ring and these bracelets. And the, and the, the text, you got to, the, the, the biblical writers are, are, are so beautiful in the way that they write their narratives. There's no throwaway details. And, and the order of things is really important. And the text says, when Laban saw the goods, it's not when he heard like the will of the Lord, right? And we know later on this is going to be an issue because Laban is the uncle that Jacob will go back and end up working for, and he's just a shyster, right? He is, uh, is about the money and the goods. And, and you get a hint of his character here. And, and there's a sense in which uh, they want the goods, but they also don't want to give up their sister. And so they say, yes, uh, you know, this is of the Lord, although it, it's, it's, I, we don't know how they would know the Lord in any type of, of close relationship. My sense is that they're responding to the story that Eliezer says, and we can see that it is from your Lord. Um, and uh, then Laban and Bethuel, who's the, who's the father, but, you know, he doesn't seem to be doing the talking. Laban does. This is verse 50. Uh, they say, Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Uh, Abraham's servant heard this. He gives thanks. He bows. He gives a lot more costly gifts. Uh, and when they arose in the morning, Eliezer is ready to go. He says in verse 44, send me away to her master. But her brother and her mother said, let the young women remain with us a while, at least 10 days. Now, 10 days is, uh, that's, nobody was really sure exactly how long. Uh, it was kind of an idiomatic expression. It could be 10 minutes. It could be 10 days. It could be multiple years. Uh, and there's the, the real sense here that, that they're wanting to hold on to. They're not wanting to be decisive in their word of giving Rebecca to Isaac or to go with Eliezer. Uh, and, you know, he pushes it, though, and he says, no, we, uh, we, we need to go. Uh, Do not delay me, the servant says, verse 56, since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, well, let's call the young woman. And I love this. Uh, they called Rebecca and they said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Now again, you know, we, we saw this uh, in the call to Abraham. And, you know, Abraham, when we get to the hall of faith, ultimately, in Hebrews chapter 11, ultimately it is, you know, his willingness to leave his father's home and go to this land that I will show you, which is credited as faith. And here you see the same thing with Rebecca. She is being asked to leave her father's home. She is being asked to give up all of the comforts and familiarity that she has enjoyed throughout her years. She is being asked to go with this man who seems credible, but, you know, do they know him? Uh, she is being asked to marry a dude that she has never met. She is being asked of a whole lot, but she says, I will go. And, and I think, you know, part of what I want us to hear here is the importance of decision and decisiveness. You know, there are so many ways 
over the years, I'll say it. I'm hesitant on whether I wanted to say this or not. The, over the years, we, you know, we have had so many people say to us, you know, we've always thought about being foster parents. We've always thought about that. And if I had a, a nickel for every parent who, or, or every person who ever told us that, probably could have started a separate orphanage, you know, of, of, you know, for these foster kids. And now I know that there's lots of things and not everybody's called to everything. I totally get that. But sometimes I think, you know, what, what is stopping you? You know, be decisive. If you've thought about it, if God's been pushing you in that direction, go. God will be with you. You may not have all the answers. You may not know uh, who Isaac is on the other side. You may not even be sure of the direction that you are going to follow. But part of the question is, do we trust God? You know, do we believe that in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of life's threatening situations, that God will lead us, that God will guide us, that he will have his hand on us? And I want to suggest to you that Rebecca did. You know, and in that sense, she encourages us, she encourages God's people to be decisive, uh, to step out in faith when we sense that God is leading us in a particular direction. And then we must embrace God's good gifts. I want to bring us here to Isaac. The, the story of Abraham and Isaac is, is really an interesting one. Uh, go back and read carefully again. Uh, chapter 22, <coughs> two things uh, that I had to go back and I had to reread this several times to make sure that this was right. First of all, when, when God is on, uh, when I, Abraham has the knife up and is about to kill Isaac, uh, God says to Abraham, don't do this, and he shows him the ram. Uh, Later, when Abraham comes down the mountain, there's no mention of Isaac. Abraham returns to uh, his men, and, uh, and, and then they go on their journey from there. The, the reason why I bring this up is that it's not entirely clear the nature of the, of the relationship between Abraham and Isaac at this time. Uh, Abraham clearly loves Isaac. But, but Isaac seems to be struggling. You notice here, he's living apart from his father. His father is living in Beersheba. Uh, you know, Isaac has been down in Beer Lahai Roy, which is the place where Hagar went, you know, when Abraham sent her away. And it's, it's like 75 miles, which is a lot longer in that day than it is here. Uh, and, and Isaac is wandering. Uh, and, and there's no sort of coming together at the end of the story between Abraham and Isaac. In fact, the next time we see them together is at Abraham's grave when we see Isaac and Abraham sort of in the same place. Now, why do I say that? I say this because discipleship is not easy. You know, Abraham taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah... And Isaac was, was great and went along with it, but, but that must have been a very traumatic experience. I mean, to have your father with a knife above, you know, and, and to, to think about it. And, you know, to think about what the promise was and, and what that meant. You know, he said, God, if you could ask, you know, even taking aside his self, if you could ask my father to give up this, 
you know, this son who he loved and he prayed for, what are you going to ask me to give up when I am the patriarch? Yeah, I, I think Isaac is in an existential moment here where he is uh, considering what does it mean to be the inheritor? What does it mean to be the one who has to walk before the Lord? It's always good, but it's not always safe, right? And in the midst of that, and you get that sense, God brings a good gift. He brings him a wife. And the text is clear to us at this point as well that he takes Rebecca. Rebecca, you know, comes and uh, uh, the servant told Isaac all of the things that had happened, verse 66. And then verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her in this way. Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The good gifts that God give us in right time. For some of you, it, it may be a spouse in the way that it was for Isaac and Rebecca. While he was languishing, while he was wandering, uh, you know, God brought him just the right person at the, at the right time. And the same thing is true with us. He, you know, whether it's a wife or whether it's a good friend, you know, whether it's a stranger that somehow God has ordained to be useful in our lives, he brings us the gift of a person to come alongside of us. And what we need to do, you know, how do we get through the threats, right? That's the question that we're working on. We need to have eyes to see and to recognize the good gifts that God brings into our lives. And we need to listen to them. And we need to allow ourselves to be comforted. Isaac had to be the patriarch. He has to take over for Abraham, as it were. And, and he needed the comfort that Rebecca brought to him at that time. It was a good gift. Here's the, the second and perhaps maybe the pinnacle of this whole thing with regards to good gifts. You know, when I talk about Rebecca this way, leaving her father's home, you know, going, you know, uh, we'll put it this way, leaving her father's home, incarnating herself in a land, a land of promise. When she went in order that she might bring, become the bearer of life so that the promise could be fulfilled as she comes to bring hope and comfort to the people of God. Who are we talking about? Ultimately, we're talking about the Lord Jesus. Rebecca is such a beautiful picture of Christ. And I, and I love it when the scriptures gives a, give us these pictures of the ministry of Christ. Uh, because we see so clearly what it cost him to leave his father's home, to incarnate himself among a people who were rebellious, in a land that was promised but yet did not know the fulfillment of that promise. We, we understand what it was like for our Savior to bring life into the world through travail. 
You know, not the travel of birth, but the travel of going to a cross, of, of laying out his very life's blood in order that we might be redeemed. We know what it's like for Christ to become the inheritor of all things. You know, Rebecca was blessed. She stepped into this inheritance, right? Christ has become the inheritor of all things of which we are a part, the newness of life. As we read through these stories, we see God's hand at work in the midst of threats, uh, but we see it most ultimately at work in the person of Jesus. And so, do we have hope? Do you have hope? I mean, that's, that's the question. The people of God, the answer is yes, we're going to come to the table. A and the table is going to speak to us of a son you know, who left his father's home in order to become sin for us, in order that we might become the righteousness of God. We have hope in all things. I don't know what you're facing this week, but you have the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may say, I, I don't know if I have that hope. You know, I don't know exactly where my life is in relationship to the Lord. Well, it's really the question for all of us, but it's an invitation. You know, as we go to the table in just a minute, you're going to see people who have said, you know, this is my hope. It's the finished work of Christ. I, I, I put aside everything else. This is my hope. And, and, and my invitation to you would be to say, look at there is room at the table. You know, this, this, is, this is not a, uh, a banquet full hall that is at capacity. Uh, there is a, a limitless capacity at the banquet hall uh, of Jesus Christ. Come and find yourself there. Find yourself there. And you too will know the hope of a faithful God even in the midst of threats and opposition. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It is uh, such a, a, a full word to us today. It speaks to us at so many levels. Father, we pray that you would meet us each step along the way for those uh, making decisions. Lord, help us to see the crucial things. Help us to be decisive and committed to not go back and to be willing to go forward. Father, give us that right balance of faith and action as we live out our lives. May we neither be too reticent nor too assertive, but may we be uh, re actively passive, resting uh, in you. And Father, ultimately, may you teach us to receive your good gifts, the people that you bring into our lives, uh, but most of all, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we see your faithfulness in this word and in our world, we pray that we would be encouraged to give you our fears and to place our hope and our trust in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.